My name is Paul Riley, also known as Political Paul, and this is The Riley Rant, a weekly podcast where we discuss all things political, professional, and personal. Let's rant. Thank you for tuning in to the 12th official episode of The Riley Rant. As is noted in the intro, we discuss all things political, professional, and personal. And similar to an episode we did two weeks ago on healthcare reform, I wanted to do another political rant, this time focusing on a political development that took place this past week, the confirmation of Neil Gorsuch as the next Associate Justice to the Supreme Court. Of course, he is replacing Antonin Scalia, a justice who passed away February of 2016, suddenly um, at a ranch in Texas. And so given that there are pundits and politicians and folks in the media talking about cloture, talking about the nuclear option, I wanted to spend some time this week giving you some color and clarity on what all this means, because I realized that everyone is not a political junkie like me. And so I wanted to ensure that you were more informed on this topic and that you left this episode with a better understanding of how we got to this point and what this will mean potentially for us and the Senate moving forward. And so to provide this historical context, I want to leverage a piece written by Lisa Mascaro in the LA Times. She basically does a Q&A answering some frequently asked questions around cloture, around the nuclear option, and around why this is such a big deal. And so definitely want to leverage her piece as I provide this historical context for you to give you more insight into this topic. And so when you think about the Senate, it's important to note that the founding fathers intended for the Senate to be a deliberative body. They wanted it to be slow moving. They wanted to take time for things to pan out. They wanted bipartisanship, so senators working together to think through issues. And they also provided a lot of power to the minority party in the chamber. And so one way they did this was through affording senators the opportunity for limitless debate. And we saw that recently with Ted Cruz a few years ago. But throughout our political history, we see senators using the significant amount of power that's given to them uh, through limitless debate to obstruct and to block civil rights legislation, for example, which is what some Southern Democrats did with a 60-day filibuster. Or, you know, many, many years ago in 1917, where the Senate filibustered Woodrow Wilson's desire to arm merchant ships during World War One, And so you see throughout history, senators asserting their, their power, oftentimes is an individual or a small group of individuals who can really transform and impact the legislative process, primarily by slowing it down, by disrupting and obstructing, and by bringing things to a halt. And so this sort of frustrated Woodrow Wilson, particularly in 1917, as I mentioned, with his desire to arm merchant ships traveling in international waters, and him being halted or stopped by a Senate filibuster that blocked the measure from being put into place from taking effect. And this was through a 23-day filibuster. Uh, So senators speaking out, saying, no, I disagree with this. We can't move forward with this. And just a side note, what's also so funny about filibusters is that it doesn't require you to even talk about 
substantive things or, or, or important things. Some senators have famously filibustered bills or legislation by reading the, the phone book or by reading the dictionary or reading Dr. Seuss. And so there's really no requirement on what you say when you filibuster. Uh, there's only a requirement that you're talking um, and that you're, you're holding the mic or the podium and delivering your points, whether they're related to the topic or not. So I just wanted to provide that side note. But as I mentioned, this frustrated Woodrow Wilson, and he said to the Senate leadership, you have to find a workaround. You have to find a way around this. Yes, we understand that the Senate's going to have limitless debate, but there has to be a way for the Senate to come together to, to vote to end debate so that we can vote on some of the most pressing and important issues of, of the day. And so the Senate in 1917 agreed and they created what we call a cloture rule. And cloture is basically another word for closure. And it's basically a vote that can be called to end debate. So if you are a senator or a group of senators, I believe you need around 16 to sign a petition for cloture. But you basically need a group of senators to say, okay, enough is enough. We've been talking about this for too long. If we don't intervene, this conversation is going to go on for days and weeks on end. Let's take a vote to end debate. And so they they agreed that this would be the rule on ending filibusters, and they demanded that you need two-thirds of the Senate to agree to end debate. So at that time, 67 votes to end debate. Many years later, in 1975, the Senate voted to lower that threshold to 60 votes. And so up till about 2013, the rule was that if you wanted to end debate, you needed 60 votes. And again, this goes back to the Founding Fathers' desires for bipartisanship, because oftentimes, you know, rarely is the Senate controlled or rarely does the majority party in the Senate have more than 60 votes or over 60 votes. And so in order to end debate, there was a belief that you would need some consensus building, some bipartisanship to get other members or other individuals on the opposing party to join your desire to end debate, ultimately leading to bipartisanship and consensus on voting on important issues. And so that was the norm. And then, you know, with the election of Obama, and this was in the making years prior to Obama taking office, but with the election of Obama in 2008 and then his re-election in 2012, you begin to see Congress becoming more and more polarized. They're moving further and further away from each other in terms of ideology, and there's a lot of gridlock and tension. And so in the Senate, you saw this with Barack Obama's nominations for federal positions, and for judges at the federal level. There were about 79 attempts by Democrats to get President Obama's presidential appointments confirmed. And the Republicans, again, given the, that the minority party and individual senators have so much power, they were able to obstruct and they were able to stop the Democrats from getting the 60 votes needed to end debate on these nominations. Um, and so it was a situation where the Democrats were in a predicament where these nominees would never be confirmed because they could never get Republicans to join their efforts to get 60 votes to end debate and to vote on them. And so this frustrated Democrats, understandably, uh, but it caused them to do something very dramatic with respect to the Senate rules. So as I mentioned before, again, throughout history, 60 votes to end debate, that was the standard, that was the threshold. Well, the Democrats said, you know what, the Republicans have obstructed 79 presidential appointments of Obama. They're leaving these positions vacant. We're not able to get these caseloads, you know, solved at these you know, different circuit courts. And we, there's something that needs to be done. And so Senator Harry Reid, the majority leader, he 
decides to change the Senate rules to say, for all appointments below the Supreme Court, so don't touch the Supreme Court, but for all appointments below the Supreme Court made by the president, you only need 51 votes to end debate. And so this was a drastic turn of events uh, because it now meant that to end debate on topics uh, like presidential appointments, you only needed 51 votes. That meant that the majority party in the Senate would always now have the power to just end debate. They didn't have to listen to their opposing party, the minority party, and they could push these confirmations through. And that's what the Democrats did. They, they changed the rules and they allowed for those judges to be confirmed on those courts. But when they made this choice, a lot of people warned that this was opening up Pandora's box. This was going to be extremely dangerous because it could potentially move into other areas like the Supreme Court or even legislation, which all require, again, 60 votes to end debate. And so the Democrats push forward with that plan. And then we get to a point where in 2016, as I mentioned earlier, Antonin Scalia dies. Obama believes that he has the right to appoint the next justice, and he, he selects Merrick Garland. And the Republicans obstruct, and they say, we're not going to consider Merrick Garland for anything. We're not going to give him an up or down vote. This is an election year. We're going to let the people elect the president and the president will be a, the new president. They will have the power to choose the next Supreme Court justice. And so there was tension and frustration with the Democrats with respect to the Supreme Court nomination. And when Trump won and selected Neil Gorsuch as his pick, Democrats were still seething and reeling from the fact that uh, for the last maybe 10 months or last year, their nominee, Mayor Garland, under President Obama, was never even considered. And so they were of the mindset that we're not going to even give Neil Gorsuch the time of day. And of course, they tried to give him a chance and listen to his answers, but they were coming from, he should not even be nominated for this post because this should be Merrick Garland's seat. Obama appointed him when he was president. There's no reason why we should be even entertaining any confirmation hearings for this guy. And so this led to what many were calling the nuclear option. Never in the history of Supreme Court nominations has a senator threatened to filibuster. Now, of course, senators may have disagreed with nominations, but they would always vote to end debate and then vote no when they got to officially do the up or down vote. That was sort of the norm. It was very rare to see senators say they're going to filibuster the nomination um, in a purely partisan manner. And that was, again, due to the fact that the Democrats were pissed that their nominee, Mayor Garland, was not given a fair chance by uh, the Senate, which was controlled by the Republicans, uh, that, that Mayor Garland wasn't given that opportunity. And so they threatened the filibuster. And this is where media pundits and others are talking about the nuclear option. And this fear that the Republicans could go further than the Democrats and now lower the threshold from 60 to 51 for Supreme Court nominations, which would mean that the Supreme Court, even though it is polarized now, will be even further polarized and it will become more of a politicized appointment versus a mainstream consensus-driven one, which is what that 60-vote threshold oftentimes allowed for, a mainstream pick that both Democrats and Republicans could get behind. With the initiation of what people are calling the nuclear option going from 60 to 51, what you're essentially doing is you're saying, we are making the selection of Supreme Court justices a partisan political one, and this means that we could potentially nominate the most conservative, the most right-wing candidate, and they would still be able to get confirmed 
uh, because they only need 51 votes and the majority party, the Republicans currently have 51 votes needed to make that a reality. And so many people um, are looking at this situation and they're saying that, well, the Republicans at least are blaming the Democrats and saying, you opened up this box in 2013 when you changed the rules to get President Obama's appointments through. Democrats are firing back and saying that was a dramatic thing that we had to do because you were blocking our nominations. And so there's debate back and forth, but many people um, are, are, are very concerned about this. And the reason why people are concerned is, you know, one, again, the minority um, should have power to speak up and to deliberate in the Senate, and that's going to be sort of limited with the ability of the majority party to easily end debate and move on to voting. Uh, without taking into account the minority opinions perspectives. But the fear is that it's going to continue to escalate to other areas of um, under the Senate's jurisdiction. So we saw in 2013, they lowered the threshold for people under the Supreme Court, so not federal nominations or appointments under the Supreme Court. That was changed to 51 in 2013. And then you have 2017, Supreme Court nominations are changed to 51. And the fear is that that last protection, which is legislation, is going to now move from 60 to 51. So the thinking is that right now when you have legislation, you can threaten to filibuster and you need 60 votes to close debate. The fear is that if the majority party, so Republicans currently, if you know months down the road or a year down the road, they get frustrated that the Democrats keep filibustering their legislation, the fear is that majority party, the Republican leadership is going to then say, you know what? We're going to now change the rules for legislation as well. You don't need 60 votes in debate. You only need 51. And doing that would severely change the Senate. It would make the Senate now look more like the House of Representatives where majority rules, uh, where there's you know deliberation, but there, there isn't any need for bipartisanship because the 51 plus votes ensures that the majority party will have all of the power. The beauty of the Senate was that it requires a level of bipartisanship with that 60-vote threshold to ensure that the, the two parties are working together and to ensure that the decisions were ones that were not made out of partisan sway or out of the whims of the, the electorate, but that it was made out of the Senate using their expertise to deliberate and be thoughtful about the policy proposals they were voting on and, and enacting into law. And so the fact that we now only have legislation as the last safety mechanism with that 60 vote threshold. The fear is that that's going to be soon wiped away as partisanship continues to erode our, our government's ability to get things done. And so that's why this is such a crucial debate. That's why it's so significant um, in political circles, uh, because there's a fear of where does this stop? And are we going too far away from the founding fathers' intent for the Senate? which was to be high-level, deliberative, slow-moving, um, and bipartisan, are we now moving further and further away from that as we continue to shape and erode and change the rules for short-term political gains, uh, which has been done by both parties? And so many people are critical of the Democrats and saying that they should have not filibustered uh, because that's what led to this threshold being lowered because they weren't willing to vote for, for Gorsuch in, in that debate. And my response to that uh, would probably be that the Democrats were going to be in this predicament, whether it was Neil Gorsuch now or a potential nomination in the next year or two, in that there is no assurance on my part that the Republicans 
would not have done this later down the road when they ran into a similar obstacle. And so I think the Democrats were operating under the assumption that we might as well fight for what we believe in, filibuster, and, and suffer the consequences versus acquiesce to the will of the Republicans, potentially look weak to our base, and still have Neil Gorsuch selected as a Supreme Court justice. And so the, the Democrats took a risk. They tried to call the Republicans bluff, and the Republicans acted on the nuclear option. And now for our Supreme Court justices, you only need 51 votes to end debate, which means that the majority party has a lot of power. And, and one last thing that I'll say about this, which I think is so interesting and why I think it will have a big impact on the future, is primarily due to the fact that uh, if a president understands and knows that uh, he or she will need 60 votes to end a potential filibuster, they're going to be more inclined to nominate someone who has consensus amongst Democrats and Republicans. Now, there's some debate around if Gorsuch was a mainstream candidate. Um, I think that he's more conservative than he led many to believe. Uh, but there was at least a belief on both sides that he was qualified for the role. And, and there were some Democrats, I believe Joe Manchin and Heidi Heitkamp, uh, who supported ending debate and moving on with his nomination. Uh, but Trump had an understanding that when he put this nomination forward, he would need to build consensus and get support, hopefully from both sides of the aisle, from both parties. But now we're in a predicament where going forward, he understands that he only needs 51 votes that his party can deliver to him. And who's to say he won't nominate the next person and have them be as extreme to the right, as right wing as possible, because he understands that there is no way in which this person is not going to be confirmed under the new rules. So I think that that's another thing that, that wasn't accounted for, and that's going to have a significant impact. And then lastly, just the impact that this is going to have on the court, Neil Gorsuch is just 49 years old. That means that he has theoretically 30 to 40 years on the court impacting legislation. He's going to affect the partisan nature of the court for 30 years, and he's going to be a consistent conservative thinker on the court pushing for conservative interpretations of the law. And so the significance of these nominations and these appointments of these justices is that they're going to impact our lives and they're going to impact legal interpretation for many decades that any time you have the opportunity to appoint a justice is a significant event. And the fact that the threshold has been lowered, it, it speaks to where we're going and what direction we're heading as a nation and how partisan we're becoming, and how that's going to become even more prevalent and, and present and apparent on the Supreme Court, the body that's tasked with interpreting significant things like Brown v. Board of Education, like Roe v. Wade, uh, like Citizens United around campaign finance. So as you continue to monitor Congress and monitor our Senate and our, our, our legislative outcomes, be mindful and, and keep an eye out for how this Voting threshold plays out with legislation. Will Republicans get extremely frustrated if they can't get their legislative agenda done, that they will switch the rules? Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has said that that won't happen. Uh, but who knows what will happen in this political age? But I hope that you'll leave this episode more informed about what happened and what this means for appointments going forward. And I hope that you'll keep an eye out and hold our elected officials accountable to ensure they don't continue eroding the deliberative nature of the Senate 
which can be a useful check and balance on the House of Representatives and on the president as we go about enacting legislation that will impact 300 million Americans uh, today and for many years to come. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please share your thoughts. And if you have any questions or points of clarification, please don't hesitate to reach out. And remember, if it's Sunday, it's time to rant. If it's Sunday, it's the Riley rant.